I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. Recycling water, reusing water, treating water is obviously incredibly important. It's a finite resource. But our principal focus is how do you improve the productivity of where water is being utilized or how water is being treated? So how do we make things better? Nanobubbles are gaining recognition as an underutilized but incredibly effective solution to many of the challenges of climate change. These microscopic bubbles can improve energy efficiency, save water, and reduce chemical use across a whole range of industries, from agriculture and aquaculture to mining and municipal water treatment. In this episode, I talk with Moliere CEO Nick Diner. Moliere is at the forefront of bringing the efficiency of nanobubbles to industries that shape our world. Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Holly. So, Nick, you serve as Moliere's CEO, and you were brought on after the company was operational. How was the technology first developed? Sure. So, we have to go back to 2016. Our co-founders, who are still with the company, Bruce Schulten, our CTO, and the inventor of the technology, and Lauren Russell, our chief commercial officer, were working together to find a way to improve the oxygen transfer rates of aeration systems for wastewater treatment. That's actually kind of a neat backstory. Traditional aeration, which is the function of blowing air into water to make it aerobic, usually in wastewater, actually consumes 2% of the world's energy, is a very inefficient process. It's inefficient because when you put air into water, you form a bubble. The size of the bubble dictates how fast it rises. The distance or the depth dictates the distance it's going to travel. It's a race against time. Shallower waters, that's even harder to achieve an aerobic environment given what I just described. So Warren was seeking a technology that could make smaller bubbles that would stay in the water longer. He was interested in the idea of nanobubbles, which were being researched primarily out of Japan and Korea. And there was not a lot, but some papers being generated that perked his attention across his screen, so to speak. And he reached out to Bruce to see if there's a way to achieve bubbles that were so small they would stay in the water for a long period of time. Bruce developed something, filed some patents, sent it out to Warren's project in the UAE. And sure enough, they saw very high levels of oxygen and it was sustained levels of oxygen, even though it was a shallow body of water and a high temperature. They ran another project that was similar to that, saw really interesting outcomes again, and decided that they wanted to create a company. And I was fortunate enough with a few others at the end of 2016 to meet them. And then shortly thereafter, invested in the technology and the two of them and joined them to help grow the business. So it was built out of necessity, which is a neat place in terms of where technology originates from. So did it work for that case study, for that initial deployment? It did. And the next one. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have joined them. (laughs) (laughs) And what does it actually look like? How do you infuse the oxygen into the water? I'm thinking a giant soda stream. Yeah, no, it's not that elegant on the desktop of a kitchen. It looks more industrial than that. So the first thing you should be picturing is something that looks like a pipe, something that water or liquid is going to pass through. The technology itself is gas agnostic, liquid agnostic, and we have a number of applications outside of water, but primarily we focus on water, so I'll use that as the surrogate for liquid. So the first thing you should think about is a pipe that water is passing through. Within that pipe, we have some proprietary materials that's going to diffuse or inject the gas. could be air, could be oxygen nitrogen, CO2, ozone, doesn't matter, into that flowing water. We're going to manipulate the way that water flows. Uh, When that water and gas come together, the technology does two distinct things. It dissolves the vast majority of that gas into water. So whereas I've said before, only one and a half percent per foot of water, we're dissolving sometimes 30 or more X than that number. So we make that gas more affordable because you need less of it to get the amount that you want in the water. And in doing so, we also form 
enormous concentrations of these 100 nanometer size gas bubbles, which are more like gas particles at that scale. 100 nanometers is about 2,500 times smaller than a grain of salt. You do not see with your eye. You need to put it under uh, microscopes that specialize in detection of nanosized particles and liquids to know that you have a concentration or you need to see the outcome. That could only be a result of the presence of nanobubbles. What we do is we take that pipe that I just described and we offer it in different flow rates. So it's actually scalable to any flow. That's allowed us to commercialize the technology so rapidly in a sort of a new class of science and what are considered fairly conservative industries. And it's very versatile. As I said before, water is what I'm talking about today, but we can treat almost any liquid utilizing almost any gas. And then we package it into a system that might provide you a pump if you need it. It might provide you the gas source, an air compressor, oxygen generator if you need it. They can give you controls and give you sensors, and it comes in different sizes based on the amount of water or liquid you need to treat. And so ultimately, you're picturing an industrial system of various sizes. You've worked in water technology throughout your career, starting with GE. What prompted you to join Moliere? So, like you said, I was with GE. I left in 2010 to join a venture-backed startup in reverse osmosis membranes. So desalination is, was sort of where I went to after GE an area I still have a lot of passion for. was there for six years. The first four years with Nano H2O, leading the commercial organization that was acquired by LG. Part of the agreement was why I would stay to the end of 2016 to help them expand the business globally. It was a fantastic experience. It's an amazing company. And they've done extraordinary things in the membrane field and with Nano H2O. But at that time, I didn't want to stay any longer. And I was looking for another water-related technology to connect with and to help commercialize and bring to market. What was interesting about Moliere and perhaps more importantly was nanobubbles was when I met Bruce and Warren, after they talked about what it is, I went away and like anybody did some Google searches. In 2017, there weren't nearly as many papers being published in the use of nanobubbles, but there was enough that it brings you down a rabbit hole for a very long period of time and you get really excited. Areas from the use of nanobubbles in cancer treatment and diagnostic imaging, using nanobubbles to improve the way different products are cleaned. In fact, predating us, there's a carpet cleaning company that had nanobubble technology to enhance the efficacy of dirt and grit removal from carpets. There were activities around different chemicals like paints and how paints dry, scale inhibition on heat exchangers. And so you start to look at this thing as a really interesting platform technology that not only grew some more improved created value in wastewater, but could go in a lot of different places and could start to create big impacts around lots of different industries, in particular, a water is a medium. So as you've touched on, Moliere has applications for their nanobubbles across all sorts of industries. You've got agriculture, aquaculture, oil and gas, wastewater treatment. Could you talk to us about agriculture and what that looks like and how Moliere starts engaging with farmers? Are they coming to you for a solution or are you presenting this and selling it to them as a way to reduce chemicals and other additives? Yeah, it's, it's actually a neat story how we got into ag or into irrigation. We weren't specifically targeting it. And I'll tell you the story, but before I get to that story, just to kind of frame the way water is used, about 70% of the world's water goes to irrigation. People often forget that. We always associate water and the availability of water is how it's going to impact me at home, which is relevant, right? That's what we ultimately care about more than anything else until we think about how it's utilized. But 70% of the world's water goes to irrigation, 20% goes to industry, 10% between, there's roughly 10% between water and wastewater in the home. And so, you know, when you can play in irrigation and create value in that space, it can become a really large opportunity. It's one of the reasons why we're obviously very focused on it, combined with the 
value proposition, the effects or the benefits it's having, and the solutions it's offering, particularly around input costs, chemicals, nutrients, and whatnot. In 2018, beginning of 2018 and 2017, we were approached by a well-known crop consultant who also has their own business in horticulture, hydroponics, which means you're growing crops in water, in this particular case, leafy greens, only in about six inches of water, right? So think of like a plastic platform. You've got the plant sitting on top and underneath the platform, the roots are touching a little bit of water. And although we all know that the plants need CO2, it's actually the leaves need CO2, the roots need oxygen. Without oxygen, plant's going to die. It's going to asphyxiate, can't eat. And you need to make that water aerobic. And so when they'd heard about the gas transfer or oxygen transfer advantages of nanobubble technology and what we were, you know, we were starting to marketing ourselves, we got connected. And he was curious to know, could I use your technology to put pure oxygen into my hydroponic water and see if I can elevate the dissolved oxygen levels and get more production, particularly in the summertime where it's too hot to be able to get any oxygen in that water and therefore we can't grow. And so we said, let's try it. And we took oxygen which naturally with air has a maximum of about nine or 10 parts per million. With pure oxygen, you can go about 5x that. And we took it up to about 30 parts per million cost-effectively without really increasing costs at all. And from what before he couldn't sell any of the produce in the summer, he was able to sell all the produce. The yield improvements were over 50% on all of these different leafy greens. And although science suggested that's exactly what should have happened, it was still pretty exciting and certainly you know, kind of said, hey, there's something here, let's try this again. We did it in another greenhouse. Both of these were in Dallas, Texas area. Saw similar results. And we decided, you know what? There's a value proposition here we should go after. Sales cycles are shorter. We're clearly addressing a critical need, which is how do I make water more oxygenated or more aerobic, which is well understood in growing as being important for the root development, root health of the crop. I don't think anyone anticipated how much value that would create in both increasing yields and increasing the caliber, the quality of the fruit and vegetable, but also improving or lowering so many other input costs associated with the need to disinfect irrigation water, the need to disinfect the equipment or clean the equipment that uh, occurs from things like biofilm growth to eliminate disease, and ultimately to be able to utilize nutrients more efficiently because you'll get better nutrient absorption to that crop. And so that's how we got into that space. It's our biggest market today. I say it's kind of a, it's not a coincidence, but it should go hand in hand. 70% of the world's water is going to irrigation, and you have a play in irrigation. It probably will become your biggest market. But about half our business is in that field today. So were they not growing any crops in the summer because of the heat and because of the fact that water holds a lot less oxygen as it warms up? That's right. That's exactly the challenge. As water gets warmer, just like your soda gets warmer, it's more flat. As water gets warmer, it's also going to hold less oxygen. And so in that particular environment, the temperature was 99 degrees Fahrenheit. And at that level, was not able to get oxygen in there cost effectively and therefore couldn't grow crops cost effectively to be able to sell them. You can use chillers. Chillers are more expensive. So they took that whole season off. Took the whole season off, yeah. Wow. Until you came in. Until we came in. And now they're growing in the summers? And now they're growing in the summers. Yeah. Has the competition noticed? Yeah, we actually have competition two directions. One of them, other nanobubble companies that are merging because this new class of science, which is not really new anymore, is starting to become more well-known and well-understood. And the other is folks trying to figure out other ways to oxygenate water. But the clear critical difference is it's more than just the oxygen. It's also the benefits of nanobubbles that create all the added value around yield, crop quality, reduction of input costs. Oxygen alone can't do that. With aquaculture, understand you can really reduce the amount of feed and potential for disease 
in some of these installations? Yeah, so we in principle we focus on salmon farming today and a little bit in shrimp farming. Salmon because those are that is the one area of aquaculture where growers are investing heavily in technology. And one of the areas that they are focused on is how to improve the oxygenation of all the different grow out facilities from the hatchery when they start out on land and then eventually go out to the sea cage, some of the treatment that the fish have to go through before they go to market, and then ultimately the restoring the sea floor, which is becoming a bigger and bigger issue in, in a good way, regulated as a requirement for growers as a problem they have to go address and solve. And so our technology plays a critical role across that entire spectrum of, of applications within how you bring a salmon from the start to the market. And so we focus really in two areas. One of them, as I mentioned before, technology is going to dissolve the gas more efficient than anybody else's. So we lower the cost of oxygen, or we allow them to get more oxygen about water so they can increase the stocking density, meaning more fish at any given point in time that they can grow out and then grow and then bring to market. Secondly, we improve water quality. And that really comes down to the, the nanobubble and improve the fish welfare, they call it, or the fish health, and ultimately how that translates to feed conversion rates, the biomass, meaning the weight of the fish, how fast it grows, and being able to utilize that feed more efficiently, meaning lower those costs. And so that's where the, the nanobubble aspect comes into play as well. And I think the most exciting area from a climate sustainability aspect is that last piece I mentioned, which was the seabed remediation. So unfortunately, when you're growing salmon offshore, you have quite a bit of waste, both the fish waste and food waste that reaches the seafloor below the cage. And that ultimately converts into an anaerobic or anoxic environment where the natural wildlife can't flourish, can't live, and it dies out. And particularly in Chile, but we expect this to expand globally over time, there are mandates now that growers need to also invest in restoring the seafloor. It's called seabed remediation. So you've damaged it, now fix it. And that's where nanobubble technology comes in. It has been the only solution that so far has proven to be able to basically restore, rehabilitate the seafloor below these sea cages. That not only do you meet the environmental requirements from a regulatory perspective, but you're actually doing good. You're bringing back what you've potentially destroyed and also now in the future preventing that destruction of the seabed as a result. So in these photos that you have on your website, the Moliere unit is actually floating on these different sea cages. Mm -hmm. And is the oxygen going in at the surface level and then also down at the seafloor level? That's right. So picture piping going down and then it gets diffused onto the seafloor. But the oxygen, the nanobubble oxygenated water starts at the, at the surface and gets pumped down. Okay. And so then you bring more oxygen to the seafloor so that aquatic life does better. Yeah, you bring oxygen nanobubbles to the seafloor. So one of the other properties of nanobubbles I didn't touch on earlier when I was mentioning surface tension, viscosity, is that they also have a naturally producing oxidant or disinfection capability to it. And so oxidants are things like bleach, you know, chlorine, hydrogen peroxide. Those are very strong oxidants. And obviously, they play an important role in different aspects of water treatment, to put it simply. But on the seafloor, the bubbles themselves provide a mild oxidant. And that mild oxidant helps also eliminate some of the contaminants that accumulate there due to fish waste, feed waste, et cetera. Do you anticipate applications for restoration efforts on other open water areas? Yeah, so about a quarter of our business historically is what we call surface water. And surface water can be anything from your traditional golf course, community pond, to a stormwater channel. The largest project Moliere did to date was a stormwater channel actually in Los Angeles County, where it appears that there was some sort of chemical spill. We don't know the full origin of what happened. But very rapidly, that stormwater channel went from an 
aerobic to a completely anoxic anaerobic state. When it's anaerobic, things like sulfate-reducing bacteria forms. That sulfate-reducing bacteria forms hydrogen sulfide, which forms that rotten egg smell. The rotten egg smell and the amount of hydrogen sulfide gas that was emitted from the channel was strong enough that everybody in the community could smell it. And about 1,200 homes or families were relocated temporarily to get out of that environment. It ended up being one of the largest cleanups or remediations or restoration projects that any stormwater division in any county in the United States has ever done. LA County reached out to Moliere. And in about two weeks, we started to deploy eventually 60 million gallons per day of nanobubble treatment to restore that stormwater channel. And within a few weeks after we were fully deployed, we eliminated the anoxic or anaerobic condition. The odors went away. The air became safe. Families came back home. It lasted about four months in total or three and a half to four months to do the full restoration. But it's an example of the value of the technology. To LA County's credit, they could have used harmful chemicals to eliminate that smell. They didn't want to do that. And they could have used aeration to create an aerobic environment, but it would have stripped out even more hydrogen sulfide, which would have been even more dangerous temporarily for the area. So to LA County's credit, they sought a sustainable solution that would do two things. It would treat the problem under the surface so you wouldn't emit more. And would, they weren't going to use harmful chemicals like peroxides or chlorine or bleaches to try to oxidize the contaminants that had built up into that stormwater channel. So it's a project everyone here is really proud of. It's a good example of the sheer size and scale of the capability of the technology in the company and uh, the types of problems we solve. But we do hundreds of different types of surface waters every day. We're permanent installations, lakes, ponds, stormwater channels, rivers, canals, et cetera. And so in LA County, the understanding is that it was a one-time event where some chemical entered, and so you don't need ongoing remediation. Correct. I mean, the stormwater channel naturally by itself is fine. It doesn't encounter these issues. It was a a one-time event, but those one-time events happen pretty often. Think about the train derailment that happened in Ohio. Right. Something we were not involved in because the bodies of water there that were affected was less localized. But that's an area where nanobubble technology could absolutely play a role. Climate Positive is produced by Hassi, a leading climate investment firm that actively partners with clients to deploy real assets that facilitate the energy transition. To learn more, please visit Hassi.com. You do have a number of municipal engagements for some of these surface water treatments. Is that right? We do. Most of the municipal work we do is on wastewater. Okay. And on surface water, a little bit in the municipal space, but a lot of it more in terms of homeowners, like community ponds, golf course ponds, power plants, those types of end users. Now, how energy intensive is it to deploy the technology? It depends on how it's being deployed. So when you utilize an existing pump, so if you're an aquaculture facility where everyone's already pumping, or you're a wastewater treatment plant where you often already pump in the wastewater, we can integrate in. Our technology can utilize that existing pumping. And then the only energy penalty you face is a little bit of the back pressure, meaning some of that added pressure that's necessary or lost to move water through our core tech and whatever pressure is necessary to bring in compressed gas. A lot of times these facilities already have compressed air, so the energy penalty is negligible. If we have to provide a pump, then of course we are adding energy to the process. We also might be saving energy in return. Let me give you a good example of that. Take a wastewater treatment plant. If you go back to the very beginning of of our conversation and mentioning sort of the origin of Moliere, it was about the inefficiency of traditional aeration systems, which are most commonly used to increase oxygen levels in wastewater biological treatment processes. The reason why it's so inefficient is in wastewater, you have the presence of things like surfactants, which are, you know, cleaning chemicals, industrial cleaners, hand soaps, sanitizers, et cetera. 
fats, oils, and grease that come out of different types of food processing facilities or homes. And the combination of those actually prevent bubbles from dissolving oxygen as easily as they would if it was clean water. So in clean water, you can dissolve about 3% of oxygen per foot of water. In wastewater, it's 1.5%, as I mentioned before. So it drops by a factor of two. It's a pretty significant reduction in efficiency. Customers will add air nanobubbles using Moliere's technology to the front end of a wastewater treatment process to start to react with those contaminants I mentioned before, fats, oils, and grease, surfactants, those types of cleaners. And we're separating them out, oxidizing. We're basically removing them from the rest of the wastewater treatment process. Not all of them, but enough whereby when that wastewater finally gets to the aeration basin, where conventional aeration is putting an enormous amount of air into the wastewater to create an aerobic environment, we've made those bubbles dissolve oxygen more efficiently as they rise up the water column before they pop to the surface, they reach the surface and pop. And so as a result, those wastewater treatment plants don't need the same amount of energy because they don't need to get the same amount of air in there anymore because the air that is going in is dissolving more efficiently. And the biomass health improves. And so the kinetics of the treatment process gets better as well and you end up increasing the throughput. But whereas we might be adding a pump upstream, we're saving all that energy on the back end by improving the oxygen transfer efficiency of the existing aeration systems. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's actually a neat thing that we kind of start to really understand in terms of the sheer power and potential of the bubbles about two years ago to really help us understand the, the mode of action and why it was creating the value it was creating wastewater. So what's the payback period for something like that? So we often offer our technology to service in wastewater specifically, which means we come in there, we install it for the wastewater treatment plant, particularly the municipal space, more than the industrial space. And we get paid a monthly rate for that product. And obviously, they're only going to pay us per month if they save more money per month. So they're immediately saving money within the first 30 days of running our system. To give you a good example, many of our customers don't let us talk about the data, don't let us talk about, especially in wastewater, what we've done for them. But one that we often highlight is the city of Goleta up here in California because they've been very good about sharing lots of data, really allowing us to learn a lot about the value proposition of our technology, how it works, how best to optimize, et cetera. And in that particular installation, we've saved the rate players of the city of Goleta at their sanitation district over $120,000 a year in savings and operating costs. And that came to a 40% reduction in energy, 40% reduction in chemicals. So that's a good example of the benefit of adding Moliere and animal technology to the front of that treatment process and then letting it provide its value downstream in terms of optimizing the different process units before the wastewater ultimately is discharged to wherever it's going. That's incredible to be able to save 40% of both the energy and the chemicals. There aren't a lot of industries where you can, or there are not a lot of technologies where you can see that kind of result. I agree. I mean, that's how I think about nanobubble technology in terms of its future value, right? Which is ultimately, we focus more than anything else on how do you improve productivity? Recycling water, reusing water, treating water is obviously incredibly important. It's a finite resource. But our principal focus is how do you improve the productivity of where water is being utilized or how water is being treated? So how do we make things better? So if you're using water to grow a tomato, how do we help you grow a bigger tomato or use less water to grow the tomatoes you want? And if you're treating wastewater, how do we help you treat that wastewater more cost-effectively? Energy consumption, chemical consumption, or otherwise. You're calling in from California, which, despite the floods this year, has faced chronic droughts. Does that motivate you as you think about the applications in agriculture? It does, in a huge way. And I'll explain sort of twofold to it. One of them is, I remember when California mandated that homeowners reduce their sprinkler usage at home because it's like 70% of the home usage is going to irrigating your lawn. Now, 
I don't have real grass in my house, so it didn't really affect me. But when you do the math, that's like 1% of California's water. It's like, who cares, right? 80% of California's water is going to irrigation. It's over 30 trillion gallons of water irrigating over 9 million acres of land. That has to be the focus, not what we are doing on our landscapes at home, even though we can all be smarter about that. So that was one area where you kind of like, come on, let's wake up and look at you know where the real problem is and look at technologies, not just ours, but there are others that can help growers utilize water more efficiently. And then the second is actually the pain and suffering. I went to a conference about 18 months ago, where mostly in a conference, people are talking you know, about sort of the future, what it means, and how's, here's the direction of the industry. And it's usually upbeat. This conference was people hurting and literally asking politicians, like, what are you doing right now for me? And like, I can't grow right now. I shut down. I've laid off these people. I'm pulling up perfectly healthy vines because I can't irrigate. And you start to realize, like, that's a big deal. And it's not just a big deal for a California grower. It's a big deal for food across the United States. So it definitely motivates. Of course, this year, the pendulum swung the other way. And now they're hurting because they're flooded. It's actually maybe worse from an economic perspective for them. And so uh, the state can't catch a break when it comes to water and growing right now. Do you expect that nano bubbles will be applied to some of these smaller scale farms or farms overseas in developing countries? Both. And we already do both. So we started smaller. It's always easier to go after a smaller than a bigger. Sure. So we started in very small greenhouses, vertical farms, and we started moving into sort of the traditional Dutch greenhouses. Then we started moving into more of the Spanish low-end farms where they don't need a high-tech greenhouse. They have beautiful weather, but they need a greenhouse because too much heat, too much radiation, so you have to protect it. And now we're moving more into those outdoor farms. And we're launching more and more products that offer the right solution with the right price point for that particular grower. And so ultimately, the market for us is... Everywhere that water is being applied through irrigation is potentially potentially a customer. And we want to find a way to create the right product portfolio that helps them. Wonderful. Yeah. Anything else you want to address before we switch over? No, I think for me, it's just, you know, the overarching message of why I think it's so valuable to be able to have this opportunity. Again, thank you, is to be able to educate and create awareness around this category, a category that Yes, I live it every day, but most people are not familiar with. And the rate of growth in the scientific community around nanobubbles. When I joined Moliere six years ago, there were maybe 500 papers in total. Last year, 2,000 papers alone were published around the use of nanobubbles across a wide range of applications. And almost all of them, well, not almost, the majority of them are focused on water. And this is a critical ingredient to helping reduce the amount of water that's being used as opposed to focusing just on how you reuse and recycle. I think it's an important mission to focus on. So now that the technology is developed, what are the constraints to growth? I'd say that, you know, the constraints to growth for us right now are really identifying sort of where to focus in terms of like the critical needs are and making sure that we're giving all the right energy to helping those customers understand how to optimize and apply the technology, especially with more and more competitors coming in, and how to maximize the value as a result of it. And so what we're really focused on right now is really understanding, okay, where are those problems biggest? And how do we align ourselves with the right people, the right partners, and entering those spaces into it? And so, for example, if you take you know, southern Spain, for example, they grow very differently than they do in a Dutch greenhouse. If you take a municipal wastewater treatment plant, they have very different issues than an industrial food and beverage wastewater treatment plant. And so to make sure that we really are positioning Moliere for those needs of those particular customers, putting the right people in the place with the right solution, the right value proposition, and making sure we really work for the customer and work our way backwards and offer that solution to them. Fantastic. Good luck with that. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> <laughs> you got your work cut out. 
That's a big challenge. We're going to switch over to the hot seat. A book or an event that changed my perspective? An event was 9-11. I was in New York. I was actually in New Jersey going to a meeting, stuck across the Hudson River for many, many hours watching everything unfold that day. And that definitively has shaped who I am. Wow. Is that why you are in such a mission-oriented company now? I don't know for sure, but I do recognize that it makes you realize that everything's, you know, life is finite. You got to take advantage of it. Yeah. And then finally, to me, climate positive means? I think right now, climate positive means helping people, industries do more with less, right? How do you utilize resources more efficiently and respect them? Wonderful. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Climate Positive. It was great to have you and I'm excited to see more and more applications for nanobubbles. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. This really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at Hassie.com. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.